With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. A little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags, posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job. This episode is part one of a two-part series focused on interagency partners. The discussion was recorded during the 2021 Civil Affairs Roundtable. Following retired Lieutenant General Eric Wesley's call for more intense interagency relationship building for competition was a rich discussion of civil-military integration between CA and its partners in the defense, diplomacy, and development space. Speakers included Andrea Freeman, the Director of Fragility and Atrocity Response for the National Security Council's Development, Global Health, and Humanitarian Affairs Directorate, Jason Ladnier, Acting Director of the Office of Communications, Policy, and Partnerships in the State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stability Operations, Ciara Knudsen, the Director of U.S. Agency for International Development's Office of Civil Military Cooperation, and Pat Antonetti, Director for Stabilization and Peace Operations in the Office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Stability and Humanitarian Affairs. Ryan McCannell, a member of the CA Association Board of Directors, who also leads the new USAID Center for Conflict and Violence Prevention, moderated the discussion. Enjoy the show. The, the three Ds and the CivMil conversation needs to touch at multiple echelons because uh, from my time in Afghanistan, if you don't set up the person for closest to the ground for success, if you don't have guidance that comes down all of our chains together, that these are important tasks and they're important to do it together, then it's not going to happen. Okay, so we're going to get quickly on with the next part of the roundtable, and that is our discussion on uh, civil civil affairs roles in the context of the interim national security strategy U.S. Or and uh, other related policies. And our moderator for that is going to be uh, Mr. Ryan McCannell, who is director uh, for the Center for Conflict and Violence Prevention at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And he has an extremely impressive panel to enlighten us on that. So over to you, Ryan. Okay, thank you. Again, my name is Ryan McCannell. I'm uh, also a member of the Civil Association, uh, Civil Affairs Association Board. And so it's my pleasure to serve as the moderator for this panel, the Star Wars Bar panel, for those of you who are, uh, were available for the previous one, uh, talking about the interagency and, uh, and actually picking up on some of, the, some of the interesting conversation about how we structure our policymaking in the U.S., I'm really delighted that we have a, a high-powered panel for y'all to, uh, to, to get to know on this call. And so let me, um, without further ado, just go ahead and start introducing the members. So uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Andrea Freeman, who serves as the Director for Fragility and Atrocity Response for the National Security Council's uh, Development, Global Health, and Humanitarian Affairs Directorate. 
Andrea served uh, as the deputy director for the Office of Sudan and South Sudan programs at the USAID Bureau for Africa, where she supported USA or has supported USAID's field and management operations in those countries. She previously worked uh, inside and beyond the US government on policy, uh, political development, and peace building in Latin America and in Eastern and Southern Africa. So welcome, Andrea. Mr. Jason Labner serves as the acting director of the Office of Communications, Policy and Partnerships in the State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations, or CSO. Uh, Jason joined CSO's predecessor, the Office of the Coordinator for Reconstruction and Stabilization in 2006. He's directed several CSO offices and served as the acting deputy assistant, assistant secretary in 2017 and again in 2021. His previous posts include Senior Interagency Advisor for uh, the Security and Stabilization Practice at the U.S. Institute for Peace, and he's also served as a strategist on civil coordination at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul and Senior Advisor at the Fund for Peace, which is the uh, organization that produces the annual fun, uh, Fragile States Index. Uh, Ms. Sierra Knudsen serves as the director of USAID's Office of Civil Military Cooperation. And previously, Ciara worked for the State Department where she served as the director of policy and plans for this special presidential envoy to the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. Previously, she covered counterterrorism, conflict and stabilization operations and fragile states on the uh, secretary's policy planning staff. She also served as the director for strategic planning on the national security staff focused on numerous humanitarian and political crises and the Middle East transitions. And last but not least, Mr. Pat Antonetti serves as the director of stabilization and peace operations in the office of the deputy assistant secretary of defense for stability and humanitarian affairs in the office of the secretary of defense for policy. Since joining OSD policy, Pat has also served as the Director for Domestic Counterterrorism, Director for Middle East Policy, and the Country Director for Iraq. Previously, he served in a variety of command and staff positions in the U.S. Army in field artillery units in the U.S., Germany, Kosovo, and Iraq. And so, uh, again, welcome and thank you all for uh, participating. Thanks for everybody in the audience for your, for your attention. To kick us off, I'm going to um, start by asking Andrea uh, and the other panelists to offer a few quick introductory remarks, and then I'll follow up with a few discussion points, and then we'll open it up for Q&A as we did with the last one. And uh, what, the way we're going to do this <laughs> is we'll, we'll have Andrea speak first, and then Jason, if you'd like to say a few words, we'll go to Ciara, and then we'll go to Pat, and then come back to me. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks to everybody uh, for the opportunity to join today. I'm really pleased to be here with my interagency colleagues. So I, I only uh, talk to multiple times a week. So it's great to see them again and actually have a chance to see them today. Ryan asked me today to talk a little bit about the challenges in interagency uh, coordination. This is not a new topic. Um, I've seen interagency coordination from an implementing agency perspective um, for many, many years um, where I was among many being coordinated um, by the White House. Um, and now I'm sitting in a chair where I'm I'm the coordinator um, and brokering sort of across uh, different implementing agencies. So maybe I'll start with that point. Um, the NSC right now is slowly taking shape and it's still taking shape. We're still within the first 100 days. I think it's about day 84. 
there are various opportunities and challenges that have presented themselves both domestically and internationally to the new administration. And the strategic landscape that we face with the United States has changed, but our core national interests still resonate. We protect the security of the American people, expand economic prosperity and opportunity, and realize and defend democratic values at the heart of the American way of life. As you've seen, our domestic challenges are serving as a prism through which we are viewing and approaching challenges across the world with humility and recognition that we face these tests at home with a refreshed notion of American exceptionalism. You can only project strength abroad if you're strong and secure at home. This is a fundamental shift in an approach that we see as the, that the entire USG family is taking together right now. One of these areas where this resonates is how we engage in countries exhibiting fragility or those countries called fragile states, or simply put those countries where governments cannot or will not deliver core functions to their own people. This has been an area of study for a few decades now, stemming from the international community's efforts to marshal the three Ds uh, towards state building and nation building in failed or failing or conflict affected states worldwide. This challenge remains today. How we are moving forward and dealing with these thorny issues, we're building on the good work of the past and infusing these principles laid out in the Build Back Better format. The global level of violence has peaked over the last number of years, undercutting global stability and reversing development gains, driving hunger and driving record levels of displacement. Violent conflict also fuels violent extremism, but fragility and conflict and violence are multidimensional problems. So solutions require contributions from everyone, from political, diplomatic, security, civil society, humanitarian, and development actors. We want to bring all these solutions together. How? I'm going to use the Global Fragility Act as an example so I can speak more practically. First of all, how are we gonna to work together as the USG and with others? Just starting with the, uh, the Global Fragility Act or, or endearingly known as the GFA, Passed in 2019 um, with strong bipartisan support, the act aims to push our government to tackle the root causes of conflict and violence by mandating interagency coordination on conflict prevention activities in priority countries and regions around the world over a 10 year period. In short, the act provides a framework to help the US government promote peace in a strategic, tangible and measurable way by addressing drivers of conflict and taking a whole of government approach, we can help prevent conflict from occurring or spreading and obviating the need for costly military interventions and saving lives and taxpayer dollars at the same time. My colleagues here on the, on the panel have contributed to a sound baseline of analysis um, and foundation that we're going to plan to build on. For example, the Stabilization Assistance Review recommended developing more effective coordination platforms and the GFA will plan to build on that. The GFA, the law, requires a broad multi-sectoral approach that cuts through bureaucratic divisions to develop and implement country-specific plans. No single agency has the authority over resources to implement the comprehensive vision. So we, as the NSC, are elevating the ownership of the GFA to the White House to try and, and, and marshal those resources together. Number two, how are we defining fragility? We're picking up on this good work of many years of analysis and refreshing it with an eye towards how we view fragility. 
recognizing that the U.S. itself has its own vulnerabilities and fragilities. We don't necessarily view uh, fragility in a narrow sense. The drivers of fragility are much wider these days. Climate pressures, economic duress, malign influences, the aftereffects of the COVID pandemic. We're no longer simply talking about the basket case countries that are wracked by corruption, ethnic conflict, or, or impunity for mass atrocities. However, we do know that good governance and politics lies as a core pillar and driver of a, a lot of the fragility. Third, how we learn. We as the US government don't have all the answers and we must remain nimble and flexible as we learn. We are prioritizing research and learning as a core element of implementing this strategy so we can promote approaches that are most effective at preventing violence and conflict, asking questions like, what types of programs are effective at strengthening state society relations and building community resilience to the spread of violent extremism? How can we best deploy preventative diplomacy? We can also learn how our strategic competitors contribute to fragility and instability. But at the heart, all of this must be rooted in evidence and local leadership and expertise. Lastly, how we organize ourselves. This is about staffing and resources. As the interim national security strategy notes, we need to rebuild our core of diplomats, analysts, development professionals, service members, and civil servants. They must also be properly equipped with the right analytical tools so we can be smarter staff as well. Everything from conflict analysis and risk assessments to the whole program planning uh, continuum. And addressing violence and fragility must be at the top of everybody's planning, not only in Washington, but out in the field out in the embassies, out in the USAID missions, out in the combatant commands and other places where US staff are present. And most importantly, where we have touch points with local stakeholders who are, who are where the expertise truly lies in terms of finding those, those locally driven solutions. Maybe I'll stop there. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks so much, Andrea. I appreciate it. And again, we, we uh, appreciate your ability to join us in the White House today. So. Uh, Jason, over to you, sir. Folks, it's a, it's an honor to be here speaking with you. Uh, I had the pleasure of joining you a few years back down in North Carolina, uh, and I miss uh, I miss that environment. So, looking forward to seeing y'all maybe next year down there again. Just want to to kind of build off of what Andrea has said. Uh, we're at a very exciting moment for those of us that are working on conflict issues for a couple of decades. We're at, a, we're at an exciting moment where a lot of things have come together. And Andrea mentioned a few of them. She mentioned the Stabilization Assistance Review. She mentioned the Global Fragility Act. I would also throw in the 2017 uh, NDAA, which calls on uh, security sector assistance to really dig in with more granularity and intentionality on understanding places, understanding our theories of change, and understanding understanding what results we're having or not having, and having that feedback loop. So there's a lot of good conversation, and it's making it into laws and policy documents. So that's when you stop and pat yourself on the back, and then take a deep breath, and now it's the hard part of operationalizing it. It's like, what does it mean to push these through the systems? And we've been trying to do this on with SAR for a few years, and we know there's parts of, uh, of our military friends institutions that it hasn't reached yet. Uh, and so we're working that. And, and I come back to something uh, when I jump, jumped on, General Wesley was still on and talking about echelons. And I think that's super important to realize that we need to touch the, the 3Ds and the CivMil conversation needs to touch at multiple echelons. Because uh, from my time in Afghanistan, if you don't set up 
the person for closest to the ground for success. If you don't have guidance that comes down all of our chains together, that these are important tasks and they're important to do it together, then it's not going to happen. If an activity or deliverable is not on the mission essential task list, then the commander is not going to support getting it done. And so I think it is on us at these multiple levels to try to connect the dots and be clear with the intent. And so that's something that this conversation is a part of. Uh, and we've done it in other ways. And so another way we've tried to do it is with training. And so you'll hear from Pat a bit more, um, but a, a great partnership to do a stabilization course that our friends at the Army War College hosted uh, for planners across the civil agencies to really think about what does it mean to look at the planning process through a stabilization lens and how do you make that work? That's at one level. We also um, brief junior officers in y'all's qualifications course to get an introduction to what a, the civilian, what the state perspective is on the challenges of stabilization. And so we have to be looking for those really value added moments to we can we can train together. Uh, Andrea mentioned planning and every echelon planning is so key. You know, we have all have these horror stories of where the new the new planner came in and Googled what is good governance. And that's just we can't afford to have that anymore. We, we've got to move past that. And we've got to be able to know who to look to on our interagency partnerships and say, what do you know? Have, let's have a conversation together. And, and to my military friends, showing a civilian the plan when it's just about to be sent to the to the commander is not that's not integration. Right. We got to be there. And mission analysis, co-development, we've got to be there early on to really say what's going on here. And even and even how do you define success? And, and I've had many times military colleagues turning to the civilians and say, well, where's our end state? Give us the end state. And as, if you haven't learned it by now, diplomats in particular are much more comfortable with a little bit of that strategic ambiguity. And that's part of us getting to know each other and work together and understanding each of our own cultures. But the practice of planning, whether it be at a TCAP at the theater level or going down. Um, we have opportunities to do this with our stabilization annexes for the for the SAR countries. And it's practicing planning together and showing our math. One of the biggest points that the, all of our lessons have told us is we can't believe our own positive spin on some of these cases. We can't believe good governance is enough to put in a, in a strategy. We've got to really unpack it and understand that. And so that's something where we have to plan together, train together, and then try to get Part of the challenge is frequently you may turn and say, where's my State Department colleague? Where's my aid colleague? And we may not be there. And so that's when us getting it right at the higher echelons is so important. So if, if we're not there, then the, intent's been the intent has been communicated down. But if we are there, and I'm sure Pat will talk about uh, DSS, if we are there with you, then how do we actually operate together? How do we leverage some of your great capabilities uh, on that? And so uh, just the last comment with my with a focus on, on the CA community. Uh, we find common cause with you on really asking hard questions about what makes these partner societies work. What does power look like? How does power manage itself? What are those dynamics? And the more that we can push back up the policy chain, kind of a real clear understanding of what's going on here, how does power manage itself, manifest itself, and what's what are the political landscapes we need to understand? Because the big takeaway is these aren't technical fixes. It's not about building the perfect courthouse or creating the perfect police training program. It's about getting the politics right. And you all understand that. And we look forward to continuing to work on that with you. So I'll stop there, Ryan. I look forward to questions and, and more. Thanks a lot, Jason. And um, I don't know what you have against Google, man. I do most of my best work by just Google searches and then, you know, implement it.
Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. Something for everyone. The world traveler, the civil engager, the warrior diplomat. We got t-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags and posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Celebrating the heritage of civil affairs, from the civil reconnaissance of Lewis and Clark through the monuments men of World War II and companies of Vietnam. Repping the present teams of the global war on terror, with items for citizen soldiers of use of KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. Collections include suits and shoots for fans of jumping out of airplanes and looking good, Pineland to remember your trip to the People's Republic, and Lewis and Clark to honor the two party animals who popularized huge DTS vouchers. You want Pipox? We got Pipox. New items all the time. Custom flags, stickers, and shirts? Send us an email. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at LC38Brand or contact us at info at LC38Brand.com. LC38Brand.com. It's cool to like your job. Over to you, Ciara, to talk uh, about things from the USA perspective. Thanks so much, Ryan. And thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm relatively new to USAID. Uh, I joined in December from the State Department, as Ryan mentioned. It's been an incredible learning curve. And what I, I wanted to build off of what Andrea and, and Jason have said, because I think what they've described is really an incredible um, growth in the cooperation structures and thinking on stabilization and fragile states between uh, particularly the civil affairs community, but DOD writ large and state and aid together. And we see that constantly uh, as we look at the GFA and, and the stabilization assistance review and the infrastructure of cooperation that's really been built. And when I came into uh, the Office of Civilian Military Cooperation at, at USAID, I was really struck by what an incredible investment we have made as an agency in this relationship with uh, anywhere from, from five to nine people at every COCOM um, or working COCOM issues uh, at the Pentagon, um, having designated now civil military coordinators at each of our missions so that there is a point of contact for civil affairs and for soft communities that um, and DOD writ large as they try to connect uh, with USAID in each country. And it's really an incredible um, investment. And I think we are really poised for uh, not walking through the lessons again. Um, but I wanna go back to the interim national security strategy where Andrea started, because I think what's really interesting to me over the last several uh, weeks as we try to figure out 
what has changed with the new administration and what has not. And I, I sat down with all of our teams uh, globally, and I've got a huge map of 90-day priorities. And it's fascinating to see how we have aligned to the priorities of the national security strategy. And uh, everywhere across the globe, our folks uh, from USAID are working with DOD on COVID. Everywhere across the globe, they are working on China and competition. At each of the COCOMs, they are, are working on um, some element of uh, cyber or information operations. They are all trying to figure out what climate means. They are trying to uh, figure out what to do in the cases of corruption and, and democratic backsliding when we're seeing that, as well as um, lastly, continuing and the, the, the mission that, that Andrea and Jason are talking about in terms of dealing with conflict, fragile states and counterterrorism. And I think what's really interesting about this moment of cooperation between our, our three Ds is that everyone is trying to figure out what we're calling the four to six Cs together. Uh, and I think we're really grappling at the same time of what does, what does it mean? What does the post-COVID world mean? Uh, what are we really looking at? Um, how different is 2021 going to look than anything we expected before or resourced for? In terms of climate, I think each one of our agencies is trying to figure out what does it mean to have a 3D approach and what does it even mean to have a climate-friendly approach? What elements are we looking at and how is this going to work? And then I think the, the competition, which, which General Wesley talked so well about, um, is really a challenge to all of us to figure out what does it mean to work together in, uh, in the China and Russia competition space. And this is where the fact that we've built this infrastructure over the last many years, that we had people working side by side across the globe, whether it was in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Syria, Somalia, uh, we have those relationships. And so how do you build on those relationships now to take us into this space where we are really concerned about this whole range of issues that are covered uh, in the National Security Strategy Interim Guidance? But at the same time, I think there remains the challenge of how do you deal with conflict and counterterrorism in a world where a lot of folks would like to move those resources and that thinking towards competition. And as Andrea laid out uh, with uh, great detail, is is those situations haven't haven't changed in many cases, and in some cases, um, continue to really drive the agenda at the National Security Council um, because of the crises that they represent. I'm also interested because uh, coming off of six years of the Defeat ISIS campaign, uh, we now have um, situations where the majority of active operational terrorist groups are now in active conflict zones. Um, and they're not just working uh, sort of tangentially to those conflict zones, they've become partners, uh, players in those conflicts. And I would pose to our, our joint communities and to the GFA effort that that um, creates a completely different set of challenges than we've seen previously. We've been living it, but I don't think it's been part of um, our very conscious policy conversation about how those pieces fit together. There was a huge victory uh, that stabilization was uh, um, to, to recognize the political nature of stabilization. I think that the next conversation is the political nature of competition and the political nature of counterterrorism conflict dynamics together. And that puts a huge pressure on making sure the three Vs are fully coordinated. 
So I, I do think we're in a, a tremendous space. Um, we're very lucky. Ryan and I now work for the new uh, Conflict Prevention and Stabilization Bureau at USAID, which is solely focused on some of these conflict-related issues, which is a which is a major boon for for our agency and for that cooperation. But I want uh, just pose to you that we're situated very well, but I think we are all looking for answers on how this is going to go going forward. Over to you, Ryan. Hey, thanks, Tiara. I appreciate it. And to round us out, Pat, uh, if you could jump on, that'd be great. Great. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks, everyone. Uh, I'd like to uh, commend the leadership of the Civil Affairs Association and all its members for joining us today. And I'd just like to start off by kind of highlighting many of the items that were mentioned by the previous speakers. It's always great to be with the 3D partners that we have assembled today. And Andrea, thanks for taking time from the NSC. I know how busy you are over there. But there's a really good foundation that has really solidified a healthy civil military dynamic that is set and ready to embrace or tackle any challenges that we have forthcoming. So if I just might uh, kind of list these, you know, we, we back in about four years ago, doing a little bit of a stock taking, the, the SAR was a pivotal document that got the interagency on the same sheet of music. Subsequent to the SAR was immediately published DOD Directive 3000.05, which then kind of specified to DOD components how the SOAR works within DOD, which is very important. Then you had SOAR Annex implementation happening shortly thereafter in 11 key countries to get some really good lessons learned and some measuring and monitoring feedback. The theater civil affairs planning teams are established at all the combatant commands. And although they're not necessarily in the, in the same directorate, they're there and they're integrating really well with all their interagency counterparts within the GCCs. We had the Irregular Warfare Annex published to the National Defense Strategy, and it'll be interesting to see how the new administration, the, the strategy office is working on a new update to the defense strategy. But a lot of the principles, particularly around competition, will remain. And the fact of the matter is, as uh, so well briefed last summer by our partner Dave Stevenson and the joint staff to a tank session, that the senior leaders of the military recognize that this gray zone or this level below armed conflict is where a lot of their activities day to day are happening. And so how do you compete in that space is really uh, important to understand. And then while all that was happening, all that kind of theoretical work and baseline documentation going on, you had the real world experiences happening with Northeast Syria, with the civil affairs teams playing a pivotal role there, augmenting start and start forward as it got introduced on the ground as we started to consolidate gains in those areas captured, as Ciara talked about. In 2020, we had a couple other milestones. Um, we had legislatively with congressional help, which are really important. The Defense Support to Stabilization Section 1210 Alpha legislation was included in the NDAA. That was renewed for this year, and we're still trying to get some tweaks to it to help us make it a global authority and find the right funding. The Global Fragility Act was mentioned. We worked on the strategy last year. Now there's uh, where we're doing some updates to that strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability. We did run a pilot just recently of the Joint Stabilization Studies course that was mentioned uh, by Jason up at the Army War College and with PKSOI help. And so a lot of great work that has created this healthy CivMil 3D dynamic, which is really important. And the civil affairs community plays a vital role in all that. But I would caution that within DOD, there's a little bit of storm on the horizon. I just wanna highlight and uh, flag for people to kind of get some of their thinking. You know, first we had the disassociation of 
the ASD for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict from policy. So SOLEC right now is not in policy and that's created some, some challenge. We have the potential disestablishment of a, of a DASD within the organization where I work, Stability Humanitarian Affairs. And we thought we had that corrected at the end of the administration, but there's some question about that now. Will there be a DASD for Stability Humanitarian Affairs? That's a pivotal role given the import of that person that sits at the NSC decision-making meetings that happen where we set policy. We thought we had corrected folks uh, from SOCOM, the joint proponent, coming to my office to work civil affairs and within my counterpart office on the joint staff, but working right now to make sure those two billets for civil affairs at the strategic level are backfilled and, and that there, there's no guarantee that we will have civil affairs representation in OSD policy or on the joint staff. So that's something we need help with from those uh, on the line, particularly within DOD. And then you just have the overall difficulty, I would argue, within the Department of Defense of focusing on prevention and promoting stabilization. Those are difficult concepts. If you heard General Wesley's presentation to, to embrace, there's not a lot of big ticket money items that are, that are behind them that seem to draw uh, a lot of attention within the department giving the budget challenges. So how do we get the services, the combatant commands, and others to embrace prevention and work those programs and capabilities in the gray zone? You know, a, a simple aspect of this that played out over the last year is we weren't able to find money for Section 1210 Alpha in our defense-wide O&M account. So we have projects right now coming in from CENTCOM and AFRICOM for Somalia for help in the Al-Hal camp in uh, Northeast Syria to be able to spend some stabilization funds to get uh, after those challenges, but we still don't have the money. So that's uh, one of the, the, the issues that I'm working hard on with my team. And we're kind of waiting. We think if uh, we get an undersecretary soon um, who has some background with our office, we'll, we'll, we'll be on a better path, but there's no guarantee that's going to happen. And uh, even if it does, you know, given the other challenges within DOD and, and the pressures on other items, you know, to get that voice uh, for civil affairs, for stabilization, for the great work that everyone's been doing, and uh, we have the foundation to continue, that will be one of the big challenges for, for my office in the next six to nine months. So I'll go ahead and stop there and look forward to the questions, and uh, thanks everyone for joining. All right, thank you, Pat, and thanks uh, to the others as well for uh, your introductory remarks. I'm, now, I'm going to um, do what moderators always do and take the uh, privilege to ask a few introductory questions. But in the meantime, I'd like to invite anybody um, among the 100 or so folks that are listening in to please put some questions in the chat. I will do my best to uh, track those and start integrating them into the conversation and or call on you if you wish to do that um, so that we can make this more interactive. But let me start with a, uh, a question for Andrea, which actually picks up on something that Major General Wesley, actually quite a bit of what he said had to do with the relative, just the compare, to compare and contrast from some of the more authoritarian uh, strategic uh, competitors and the ability for those systems to make decisions and sort of take action. Could you talk a little bit about from your perspective and the perspective of, of uh, others in the NSC right now, what you see as the key challenges uh, being to interagency coordination, given the wide range of challenges that you know we're, we've we've identified and are identified in the interim NSS, and um, 
And just could you explain just a little bit, particularly for those who, who are not familiar with sort of the way the, NS, the NSC works, like what, you know, what you're doing to make uh, military and civilian efforts as seamless as possible? All right. So maybe I'll start with um, your broader question about the, cha the key challenges in interagency coordination. I think, uh, obviously, I think to be perfectly frank, um, the interagency muscles are still being uh, warmed up. I think from um, the last administration, I think as, as we all are quite aware, the interagency process um, wasn't quite operating in the fulsome way that we have seen in the past. Um, so I think some of this is reigniting that muscle memory across agencies and even within the NSC about how this process itself is supposed to work. Um, I spent, for example, my, my first week um, at the NSC compiling my contact list. That is my biggest achievement so far is having a good uh, Rolodex of the people who I need to call. So basically starting from scratch in terms of sort of who are the, the people to, to call in um, for certain discussions. And, and, and I, I say that half kiddingly, half not, because I think that's sort of where we're starting, just to give you a sense of sort of the starting point in terms of reigniting that amnesia, I think that has happened in terms of sort of that consultative process. The NSC is quite active now. There's multiple meetings a day. I think um, I'm looking at Sierra and Jason and others on the screen who are probably participating in multiple meetings a day, depending on the country, depending on the issue. Everything's starting to get lined up in terms of sort of trying to get ourselves organized on rolling out different policy processes across the spectrum, whether it's a specific country uh, process or um, a more thematic uh, conversation like the one that we're having under the Global Fragility Act, just as an example. The role of the interagency, I think we're reviving a number of other smaller agencies too in terms of their engagement in the, in the policymaking process. So, it, so it's a much more... Uh, I would say collegial approach in terms of bringing uh, folks in. It's not just the folks with the money or or the presence, right? But also there's a lot of expertise out there that I think had not been tapped into necessarily um, as well as it, as it could be in the past. So I would say that's one, one huge aspect. The, the next aspect, of course, is I think the perennial issue of the bureaucratic cultures that we all operate in, right? And sort of how to how to pull out of that. And I think that that's a, a constant issue across administrations. Um, I think what we're seeing now is a real genuine effort to have that common call to action across the board um, and lay out through, as an example, through the NSS, through the interim NSS document, sort of the, that value-driven sort of approach that we can all um, identify with and bring forward to our own agencies. And then, of course, as the agencies, the various agencies get staffed up and with leadership, with nominated leadership um, getting approved, I think we'll probably see probably an acceleration in terms of the engagement and probably sort of more um, profound or more um, stronger statements about sort of where, in particular, how each agency will be implementing sort of the, that view and that vision. Um, so I think it's still a work in progress. But I would say that we are spending a lot of time together lately. Over. <laughs> and, and on that note, I, I uh, appreciate it if any of the other members of the panel have anything, any insights on this. Uh, several of you have worked on this uh, either in the National Security Council or uh, on these issues for many, many years. And so uh, you might be able to bring a historical perspective in it. Um, 
So over to Jason and CR. Okay, go ahead, Sarah. Sure. I, and Ren, I think I, I, I didn't, I missed uh, General Wesson's comment on this, but I, I think I caught the gist. And um, I, I know there's often, uh, I think all of us sometimes wish that our decision making was more streamlined um, and that we could take as fast action uh, with with uh, less uh, concept of the consequences as uh, PRC or, or uh, Kremlin might be able to do. But I think that what's been fascinating about the absolute enormous storm of NSC meetings that are going on right now um, is uh, is that it is really, um, this is a moment to take stock of where we are and the world has radically changed in the last four years, but it's also radically changed in the last year. And so it is really important not to move forward in a way that doesn't fully start from a baseline understanding of where we are. And uh, I think that is something um, DOD has been doing a lot of thinking on and USAID has been doing a lot of thinking on, state's been doing a lot of thinking, the transition team did a lot of thinking on. Uh, we did not do that thinking together. And I think this is the moment where that thinking needs to come together and say, what are we really looking at in terms of the impact of, of this pandemic on the globe? What are we really looking at in terms of where, uh, where we see our competitors actually postured and what their intentions really may be? What do we see in terms of fragility, the process Andrea's leading? And I, I think the answers are not are not 100% clear. And so it is important that we take our time right now and, and get to the right baseline that we all agree together. Because if we go forward separately, there are so many crises hitting uh, constantly. It is easy to lose track of the fact that, uh, that we all have to start from the same place. That said though, uh, and I think uh, Chris laid this out in the earlier session also, is that we, we take our values-based approach very, very seriously. And that does require uh, consultation. It does require balancing a lot of uh, different interests. Um, and I do think that that is the job of the NSC with the help of the national security strategy is to lay out, um, these are our national security interests and values, and this is how we're going to work to balance them. And the NSC process is responsible for doing that on a day-to-day -day basis. And we can see what a challenge that is right now as, uh, as, we, as we head into many, many meetings, but it is exactly the process that you need to go through. Thanks, Dr. Uh, Jason or Pat, do you have anything to say? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I, I think I think what I'm saying is is echoing Ciara. I think the fundamental issue with our foreign policy is there's no other country in the world that it's trying to do as many things at the same time in its foreign policy, and and we fundamentally believe in in all of those. And so the fundamental question is, what is the best structural way to force the conversation together so that you're not having a CT conversation over here and a development conversation over here? And I think we have seen better and worse ways to do that. But uh, that's that fundamental way in which we approach foreign policy broadly is not going away. It's 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 a part of our of our national fabric. And so I think the question is, uh, we're not going to we're not going to stop caring about human rights. We're not going to start caring about opening up markets. We're not going to stop caring about security. We're not going to stop caring. And so the question is, how do you both look at them together, but also realize how good are we at bringing the future into the current conversation? Uh, a great line is, how do you make sure that the, the future has a seat at the table when you're making a policy conversation? Because some very kinetic, very flashy actions may look great in the near term, but in that mid and long term, they just make a step on our in our own feet. And so I think the question of not just how do we mix and match multiple clear policy objectives that are coming from places uh, that are core to the U.S. ethos, but also how do we make sure that the, the near and longer term uh, at least get factored into the decision making. Over. Pat, do you have anything you'd like to add? 
Yeah, just uh, really quick, Ryan. Um, as we look at these new challenges, you know, we've already started thinking about it within DoD. We just held the first inaugural climate TTX in an East Africa scenario. As we consider how the national defense, the national security strategy will will be will be different in, in shape, given what's what's going on in the uh, you know, in, in that environment, and you know, within DoD, we're very interested in is a department posture does it have the right authorities does it have the right access the right training equipment all those things that you have to react in that kind of environment which is a different way of thinking about some of the traditional ways we, we go about uh, our processes so you know we're already moving out we have uh, this group of resource competition environmental security and stabilization that was formed about a year ago at least on the, on the climate and changes in the environment where we, that will put stress on fragile spaces and making sure the interagencies uh, working on that um, together, uh, we're, we're kind of thinking about that right now. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory. In civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's Knowledge Management Solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. LC38brand.com, the civil affairs lifestyle brand. A little bit of something for everybody. T-shirts, polos, shorts, hats, flags and posters for your walls, and stickers for everything else. Celebrating the heritage of civil affairs from the civil reconnaissance of Lewis and Clark through the monuments men of World War II and companies of Vietnam. Representing the present teams of the global war on terror, we have items for citizen soldiers of USA KPOC and warrior diplomats at Fort Bragg alike. LC38brand.com. It's cool to like your job.